ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Opinionated Brothers Podcast. I am your sole host for today, Travis Porter. My co-hosts could not be here, so unfortunately you've got to deal with me. Um, Before I start, I just want to thank all of you who've given us feedback. So far, it has been overwhelmingly positive, with the only complaints being that the show is maybe a tad bit long. We try to keep our shows about an hour or so, but as the title says, we're three opinionated brothers and sometimes we can go on longer than we plan. But we do strive to get content out as quickly and as realistically as possible. If it helps when you subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher, turn on your notifications. That way, whenever we do upload a new episode, you'll know right when it goes live. It's not easy putting these together. Uh, We've all got lives and jobs and families, and we're recording on Zoom due to COVID, so it's not like we can just get together whenever we want and push record on a laptop. Also, producing the show is essentially a one-man gig. Uh, The music, the audio clips, the effects, the edits, that's all me, and I'm not saying that to toot my own horn or to get sympathy, far from it. I love doing this, and I love the fact that you guys think enough of us to listen. But hey, I got bills. Ain't nobody paying to hear us ramble on about this and that. Well, not yet anyway. And sometimes, oftentimes, the show has to take a back seat. I just want to pull the curtain back a little to let you guys know why it takes long to get these new episodes up. With that being said, let's get on with it. This is being recorded on July 28th, 2020, 11 days after the deaths of Congressman John Lewis and Minister Cordy Tyndale Vivian, a.k.a. C.T. Vivian. Both of them transitioned on Friday, July 17th in Atlanta in what felt like a one-two punch for the civil rights community and the black community. Vivian was 95 when he passed of natural causes. Lewis was 80 after a six-month battle with pancreatic cancer. I don't want to go in-depth about their accomplishments because I don't have the time for that. If I can be honest, this is kind of an impromptu recording, and I haven't done nearly enough research or show prep to do these two men justice. Next time, we'll let DJ and Tim reflect on their lives and accomplishments. But today, I myself just want to speak on these two for a few minutes. This is from an article from the New York Times, authored by Robert D. McFadden, published on July 17, 2020, the day of C.T. Vivian's death. I'll link to the article in the show description. Cordy Tyndale Vivian was born in Boonville, Missouri on July 30, 1924, the only child of Robert and Uzetta Tyndale Vivian. His family moved to Macomb, Illinois when he was six, and he later graduated from Macomb High School in 1942. He studied history at Western Illinois University in Macomb, but he dropped out and became a recreation worker in Peoria, Illinois, where he joined his first protest in 1947, helping to desegregate a cafeteria. In 1945, Mr. Vivian married Jane Teague, who worked at a hardware store, and they had one daughter, Joanne Walker, who survives him. The couple separated amicably in the late 1940s and divorced later so that Mr. Vivian could marry Octavia Jeans in 1952. She was the author of Coretta, the first biography of Dr. King's wife, Coretta Scott King, in 1970. She died in 2011. In a nation trying to come to grips with racial inequality in the 1960s, 
Mr. Vivian was a paladin of nonviolence on the front lines of bloody confrontations. He led passive protesters through shrieking white mobs and with discipline and endurance absorbed the blows of segregationist and complicit law enforcement officials across the South. Mr. Vivian was a Baptist minister and a member of Dr. King's inner circle of advisors, alongside the Reverend Fred L. Shuttlesworth, the Reverend Wyatt T. Walker, the Reverend Ralph Abernathy, and other civil rights luminaries. He was a national director of some 85 local affiliate chapters of the SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, from 1963 to 1966, directing protest activities and training in nonviolence, as well as coordinating voter registration and community development projects. In Selma and Birmingham, Alabama, St. Augustine, Florida, Jackson, Mississippi, and other segregated cities, Mr. Vivian led sit-ins at lunch counters, boycotts of businesses, and marches that continued for weeks or months, raising tensions that often led to mass arrest and harsh repression. Televised scenes of marchers attacked by police officers and firefighters with cattle prods, snarling dogs, fire hoses, and nightsticks shocked the national conscience, legitimized the civil rights movement, and led to passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Nonviolence is the only honorable way of dealing with social change because if we are wrong, nobody gets hurt but us. And if we're right, more people will participate in determining their own destinies than ever before. Mr. Vivian was arrested often and was nearly killed in 1964 in St. Augustine, America's oldest continuously inhabited city and, at the time, one of its most rigidly segregated, where he had joined Dr. King in an extended campaign of peaceful protest. On an Atlantic beach, roving gangs of whites whipped black bathers with chains and almost drowned C.T. Vivian, Stephen B. Oates wrote in Let the Trumpet Sound, his 1982 biography of Dr. King. Accompanying Dr. King on a voter registration drive in 1965, Mr. Vivian confronted Sheriff Jim Clark outside a courthouse in Selma where 1,400 black voters had been barred from registering. As television cameras rolled, Mr. Vivian asked Sheriff Clark to admit 100 black people lined up behind him just to get in out of a lightly falling rain. Sheriff Clark refused. Mr. Vivian, a tall, lanky, angular man, called Sheriff Clark a brute, fascist, and Hitler. The 220-pound sheriff struck Mr. Vivian in the mouth with his right fist, sending him reeling down the courthouse steps. Sheriff Clark then ordered deputies to arrest him for criminal provocation. Mr. Vivian was dragged away, blood streaming down his face. Sheriff Clark later told reporters that he had no recollection of the incident. Of course, the camera might make me out a liar, he said. I do have a sore finger. After leaving Dr. King's staff, Mr. Vivian founded educational and civil rights organizations. 
In addition to his daughters Kira, Denise, and Joanne, Mr. Vivian is survived by another daughter, Anita Sharice Thornton, two sons, Mark Evans Vivian and Albert Louis Vivian, nine grandchildren, ten great-grandchildren, twenty-eight great-great-grandchildren, and two great-great-great-grandchildren. Another son, Cordy Jr., died in 2010. This is just a short excerpt from an article from the New York Times by Robert D. McFadden. The link is in the show description. John Lewis's body was to lie in state in the rotunda of the United States Capitol for public viewing and procession on July 27th and 28th. No, I won't be going. No. What you just heard was our president's answer to the question if he'd be paying respects to the congressman. He was asked the question on July 27th after leaving the White House and answered, No, I won't be going. No. He then turned away with an annoyed look on his face and refused to answer questions. Even in death, John Lewis is more of a man and patriot than he could ever imagine to be. I also want to point out that on today, July 28th, there is a small protest in the city square of McDonough, about five miles south of where I actually am. It's against the removal of a statue of a nameless Confederate soldier. The more things change, the more things stay the same. We started organizing. We were able to bring more than 250,000 people to march in Washington. And we all had to prepare a speech. I was very young, 23 years old, with all of my hair and a few pounds lighter. I have the pleasure to present to this. When A. Philip Randolph said, I present to you young John Lewis the National Chairman of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Brother John Lewis. I looked to my right. I saw hundreds and hundreds of young people who had been involved during the early days. Look straight ahead. I saw this sea of humanity. Then I looked to the left, I saw young black men and young white men up in the trees trying to get a better view. And then I said to myself, but well, this is it. And I looked straight ahead again. And something said to me, go for it. And I opened my mouth and I started speaking. March today for jobs and freedom. But we have nothing to be proud of. But hundreds and thousands of our brothers are not here. For they're receiving starvation wages or no wages at all. Those who have said be patient and wait, we must say that we cannot be patient. 
We do not want our freedom gradually, but we want to be free now. The time will come when we will not confine our march into Washington. We will march through the South, through the streets of Jackson, through the streets of Danville, through the streets of Cambridge, through the streets of Birmingham. We must say, wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop, and we will not and cannot be patient. That was a clip from Oprah's masterclass on John Lewis recounting his 1963 speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. He was actually told to tone down that speech by civil rights leaders. There's a Washington Post article authored by Jillian Brockle on July 18, 2020 that describes the event. I won't read it because it's getting late and I have to go to work in the morning. But the link for that is also in the show description. I'll advise you all to give it a read. Roland Martin was on ESPN's first take on Monday morning about John Lewis and introducing him to Colin Kaepernick, among other things. Here's some clips. I was texting this guy before you came in, so you said you never talked to him. Uh, you can go ahead and say hi to him. Hello, sir. How are you? Colin? Hello? Congressman John Lewis. Hi. How you doing, brother? I'm doing great. How you doing, brother? Fine. Thank you for all of your work, for your leadership. You have uh, touched me. You have inspired me. And to see you getting out there pushing and kneeling, uh, you have done so much, uh, not just for the American community, but for the world community. I said thank you. I admire you. I love you. Thank you for paving the way for an opportunity like this to even happen. <coughs> it's, uh, it's great to finally connect with you. I talk to Mr. B about you all the time. We have great conversations. So it's great to finally have this conversation and be able to connect. Did you notice Congressman Lewis thank Kaepernick for what he was doing and the awe that Kaepernick had in his voice? He had to be thinking, wow, a civil rights icon like this is thanking me? That is the mark of a man who has a servant's heart. That was the late, great John Lewis speaking with Colin Kaepernick back in 2018. The civil rights icon offering his praise to the man who has become the face of the modern-day fight against social injustice. Congressman Lewis will lie in state today as they pay their final respects to the legendary activists. On that note, joining us now is the man who introduced the two, the great Roland Martin. So please tell me this. Why was it so important for you to connect those two? Well, it's interesting. Colin and I were actually texting um on my way there, and I tried to, I was talking to Congressman Lewis before the interview. I was doing these series of interviews in advance of MLK 50, which commemorated the assassination of Dr. King in April uh, 2018. And so I called Colin before the interview, and he didn't pick up. So I went ahead and did the interview because we didn't have much time. And then he called during the interview. So I pick it up and I answered. <laughs> That's why I didn't go to the conversation. And the fact that we even have is a miracle because we, we, we had three cameras shooting this whole interview. And we put everything on our hard drive, and our hard drive crashed. We actually thought we lost this entire interview. And luckily, the only camera that survived was the one that was on John Lewis. I didn't need me. We needed him. So thank goodness for that. But it was, it, it was really amazing. And it, what you saw there was you saw the appreciation between freedom fighters. And if you talk to, and I've talked to numerous civil rights activists and speakers in sports, when I got the Hank Aaron Award from Hank Aaron, and same thing, he, he said, Hey, I've never I've never met Colin, 
and I uh, connected those two together, put them on the phone. And there is a connection between freedom fighters who understand uh, the struggle and the sacrifice. And that's really what you heard there. And uh, if you hear the full clip, he actually invited Colin to come to D.C. He said there are a lot of members who would love to meet you and talk to you and also young folks here. And so uh, it really was uh, an amazing moment. How important was that approachability that he had? Because he's this luminary figure, but also yeah. close enough for a lot of people to like put their hands on. And that's the most important thing. If you want to go biblical, the woman with the blood problem, if she could not touch the hem of Jesus, she would not have been healed. I say that because that's what it means to be able to be able to reach somebody, touch somebody, talk to them. He made himself available. But that's what many of these figures did. Reverend C.T. Vivian and Lowry and Ambassador Andrew Young and so many others. Uh, they speak at places and they stop and talk to folks and they take phone calls and they're they're willing to engage the next generation. Because I think the problem for many of us today is we look at them as being 78, 80 and 85. And we forget they were 18, 19 and 20 years old. And so they understood what it meant for somebody to be able to uh, show them appreciation. Now, the most tangible part of John Lewis's legacy was the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which in 2013 was decimated by the Supreme Court. Right, exactly. I was going to say, pointing to your shirt, can you explain to people who are not as familiar with that the significance of the Voting Rights Act and what has happened to it since? John Lewis died fighting the very same thing he was nearly killed for on that bridge on Bloody Sunday. That march was about voting rights. It was about trying to get the Voting Rights Act uh, of uh, 1965. And so what people need to understand, and this is why non-Black people, is it's important what you're seeing in Portland and other places. Non-Black folks have benefited from this. If you're Asian and you get to vote in your native language, you've got to thank Black folks because that's a provision of the 65 Voting Rights Act. There's so many different things people have been able to benefit from that. And so all these Republicans who are praising John Lewis, I dare say to them, especially Senator Mitch McConnell, don't you dare praise Congressman John Lewis with a bill sitting on your desk to fix that Supreme Court decision. Anything you say to me is irrelevant and hollow because that's how you honor that freedom fighter by passing that law to fix it. So we don't have to have all of these problems with voter suppression in this country, which will impact us in November. Well, also, Roland, I think that it's easy for us, especially when we talk about Lewis, to kind of stop at 1965 and to stop at marching. But he was in Congress for over 30 years while he was there. What contributions did he make from that role that we should remember? It's so many things members of Congress do we will never, ever see that really impacts their district and impacts their state and impacts the country as well. And obviously, people, people when you see that monument of the National Museum of African American History and Culture, you have to also... Thank John Lewis. 15 plus years, he kept introducing that bill. And Senator Jesse Helms, that viral and racist from North Carolina, he kept blocking it. But here's something that people also don't realize. When Republicans were in control, it was Congressman J.C. Watt who, uh, who stepped aside to ensure that Lewis's name was on that bill. The Republicans who were in control did not want that to happen. But J.C. Watt said, no, I will take my name off. Lewis's name should go on that bill when Republicans were in control. And so that monument, the most visited Smithsonian Museum in Washington, D.C., that was something that John Lewis fought 15 years to actually make happen. And luckily, he was alive to see it built and to see it open. On the day he died, 
my Facebook feed was flooded with condolences from friends who had photos with John Lewis. These weren't people my parents or my grandparents' age. These were people my age. This man touched so many people across so many generations, especially down here in Atlanta. When Kobe Bryant died in February, it was the first celebrity death that really hit me because we lost someone who touched so many and meant so much to so many that was relatively close to my age. I felt a huge sadness and sense of loss. The photos with John Lewis with people my age gave me the opposite effect. I felt a warm joy and a sense of hope. Both C.T. Vivian and John Lewis got to see the election of Barack Obama. They got to see a black man be president of the United States. John Lewis said in an interview with Time Magazine, I never thought, I never dreamed of the possibility that an African-American would one day be elected president of the United States. My mother lived to see me elected to the Congress, but I wish my mother and father were both around. They would be so happy and so proud and they would be so gratified and they would be saying that the struggle and what we did and tried to do was worth it. After Obama was sworn in for his first term, Lewis had asked him to sign a commemorative picture. According to the New Yorker, Obama reportedly signed it because of you, John, Barack Obama. Hands to the heavens, no man, no weapon. Formed against, yes, glory is destined. Everyday women and men become legends. Sins that go against our skin become blessings. The movement is a rhythm to us. Freedom is like religion to us. Justice is juxtaposition in us. Justice for all just ain't specific enough. One son died, the spirit is revisiting us. True and living, living in us. Resistance is us. That's why Rosa sat on the bus. That's why we walk through Ferguson with our hands up. When it go down, we woman and man up. They say stay down and we stand up. Shots be on the ground, the camera panned up. King pointed to the mountaintop and we ran up. One day. When the glory comes, it will be ours, it will be ours. Martin Luther King Jr. called C.T. Vivian, quote, the greatest preacher that ever lived. John Lewis has been called, quote, the conscience of the U.S. Congress. Both men were awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is awarded for especially meritorious contribution to the security or national interest of the United States, world peace, or cultural or other significant public or private endeavors. C.T. Vivian was awarded the honor in 2013. Congressman Lewis was awarded the honor in 2011. Fun fact, John Lewis wrote a series of three graphic novels called March, based on his life as a civil rights icon. At San Diego Comic-Con in 2015, the 50th anniversary of Lewis's famous walk to Selma, where he and other protesters were brutally attacked while crossing Selma's Edmund Pettus Bridge on Bloody Sunday, Lewis dressed in the same outfit that he wore on that day in 1965 and even led a march of children, an event he would repeat in the next two years. That same year, John Lewis joined President Barack Obama former President George W. Bush, civil rights movement activist Amelia Boynton Robinson at Obama's side in a wheelchair to lead a march across the bridge. 
an estimated 40,000 people attended to commemorate the 1965 march and to reflect on and speak about its impact on history and continuing efforts to address and improve U.S. civil rights. Lewis made his final crossing of Edmund Pettus Bridge Sunday morning, July 26th, in a horse-drawn carriage. Edmund Winston Pettus was a former Confederate Brigadier General, U.S. Senator, and leader of the Alabama Ku Klux Klan. Caroline Randall Williams, great-great-granddaughter of Edmund Pettus, released a statement of Sunday regarding the push to rename the bridge. We name things after honorable Americans to commemorate their legacies. That bridge is named after a treasonous American who cultivated and prospered from systems of degradation and oppression before and after the Civil War. We need to rename the bridge because we need to honor an American hero, a man who made that bridge a place worth remembering. John Lewis secured that bridge's place on the right side of history. We are not a people that were made to cling to relics of the past at the cost of our hope for the future. Renaming the bridge in John Lewis's honor would be a testament to the capacity for progress, the right-mindedness, and striving toward freedom that are at the heart of what's best about the American spirit. We are tired of being beaten by policemen. We are tired of seeing our people locked up in jail over and over again. And then you holler, be patient. How long can we be patient? We want our freedom and we want it now. We do not want to go to jail. But we will go to jail if this, this is the price we must pay for love, brotherhood, and true peace. I appeal to all of you to get in this great revolution that is sweeping this nation. Get in and stay in the streets of every city, every village and hamlet of this nation until true freedom comes, until the revolution of 1776 is complete. We must get in this revolution and complete the revolution. For in the Delta of Mississippi, in Southwest Georgia, in the Black Belt of Alabama, in Harlem, in Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, and all over this nation, the black masses are on the march for jobs and freedom. They're talking about slow down and stop. We will not stop. All of the forces of Eastman, Barnett, Wallace, and Thurman will not stop this revolution. If we do not get meaningful legislation out of this Congress, the time will come when we will not confine our march into Washington. We will march through the South, through the streets of Jackson, through the streets of Danville, through the streets of Cambridge, through the streets of Birmingham. But we will march with the spirit of love and with the spirit of dignity that we have shown here today. By the forces of our demand, our determination, and our numbers, we shall splinter the segregated South into a thousand pieces and put them together in the image of God and democracy. We must say, wake up, America, wake up, for we cannot stop, and we will not and cannot be patient.
Congressman John Lewis, Minister Cordy Tyndale Vivian, we speak your names. Rest in power, sirs. Thank you for everything. We'll take it from here. Is now for every man, woman, and child Even Jesus got his crown in front of a crowd They march with the torch, we gon' run with it now Never look back, we done gone hundreds of miles From dark roads, heroes, to become a hero Facing the league of justice, his power was the people Enemy is lethal, a king became regal Saw the face of Jim Crow under a bald ego The biggest weapon it's to stay peaceful, we sing Our music is the cuts that we bleed through Somewhere in the dream we had an epiphany Now we right the wrongs in history No one can win the war individually It take the wisdom of the elders and young people's energy Welcome to the story we call victory The coming of the Lord, my eyes have seen the glory One day when the glory comes